please turn with me in Scripture to Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wished to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I do hope that you've listened to me when I said keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at Mark chapter 15 this morning, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, as we move deeper into the events of Jesus's performance of the gospel. I used that phrase intentionally. You'll see why as we work our way through Jesus's performance of the gospel. These are the events that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, all right? When we come to the portion about Jesus Christ in the Apostles' Creed, it reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead. There are a few names of persons in this section of the creed about Jesus Christ. The chief name among them is, of course, Jesus Christ, who is our confession. We might expect this confession of relationships between Jesus and others. We might expect to hear about the Holy Spirit, of course, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We might expect to hear about the relationship between Mary and Jesus, because there we're, we're seeing evidences of the incarnation of Jesus, that he took on flesh and was, was actually born as a baby from this woman. But who is Pontius Pilate? And how did he get into this mix? Why is one of the names listed in the Apostles' Creed, a fundamental confession of our faith, Pontius Pilate? Well, this morning's passage records for us the interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. We see how not only did Jesus' fellow countrymen reject him, not only those that, that he was born among fellowshiped with, grew up in the midst of, and to whom he proclaimed, reject him. But so too did the greatest imperial power of the day. This power failed to acknowledge the innocent 
righteousness of Jesus, but instead sent him to his death. By the time we're done with our passage, we will see that yes, Jesus' countrymen rejected him. Yes, the disciples rejected him. Yes, the Roman authorities rejected him. And yes, the whole of the crowd rejected him. I think that one of the things that Mark is doing in presenting these to us is he's saying, look, there is no sphere that is without excuse. Jesus has been rejected by men. Isaiah 53, verse three says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This morning's passage is of evidence of Jesus' fulfillment of this word from Isaiah 53. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you, your word is thorough. It's, it's complete. It holds together as a, as a singular story of, of evidence about our God, about your work, and about what your work has worked, what you have accomplished by what you have done. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that your word would work and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent in the midst of the congregation today. Give us ears and attention to hear from your word in expectation that your spirit would apply your word to our lives by faith so that we might be saved, so that we might be kept in you, so we might honor you with our lives and our proclamation. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for all of these things. In your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The first thing that we see in our passage this morning, right away in verse one, is that Jesus was delivered to the Gentiles. Look at it with me. Verse, chapter 15, verse one. And so it was morning. The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. We saw this happening in our passage at the end of chapter 14 last week. It says, they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to, Ponch, to, to Pilate. Jesus has clearly spoken of the events that we see unfolding right here. He's clearly spoken of his betrayal. He's clearly spoken of his death throughout the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we move on to the next phase of that which Jesus has spoken. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33 through 34, we've, we've looked at like Mark chapter 8 where he describes what's going to take place. Mark chapter 10 is another one of these places. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, it says this, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. Do you hear? Jesus is speaking like point for point what is taking place to him. Not only would he be delivered by the betrayer to the chief priest scribes, but he would also be delivered over to the Gentiles, and that takes place in our passage this morning. Now, one of the difficult things for me in preaching a passage like this. Perhaps it's a difficult thing for you in reading and, and, and really studying and giving attention to a passage like this is it's not the typical way that we think about the gospel. When we think about the gospel, we tend to think about what it means or what the gospel does, what is the, the, the accomplishment 
of the gospel in the lives of the lost. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we tend to think, yes, he suffered in the place of sinners, right? And when we talk about the death of Jesus, we think about how he accomplishes the just grounds of forgiveness for sin. His suffering and death accomplishes something. And it is justice when he stands up as judge and gives mercy. We talk about how God has reconciled himself with man because Jesus has taken upon himself the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is what we normally talk about when we talk about the gospel, and we talk about these things a lot, as we should. But when Mark presents the gospel record, what's open in front of you right now, he doesn't unpack the meaning. And he doesn't explain what is accomplished by these events as they're happening. For the most part, we have sort of a, what, I, what I've become calling a staccato record of the key events with little interpretive work. Just a pointed staccato moving, just like Mark has done the whole time, right? Throughout the whole of the book, just always moving, always immediately, always next. The very next morning, this happened. We have a staccato record, and, and there's no interpretive work by the narrator, In other words, these final chapters of Mark give us the history of the gospel. And I want to do my best to help us see it and hear it. That before we move on to the interpretive work, which is right and good, as the scriptures themselves do, I want to make sure that we see and hear what is here. And yet we do have Jesus' own interpretive work He interprets these events even before they happen. Jesus is often spoken throughout the Gospel of Mark of his impending suffering and death. And and he interprets it for us. He says this in Mark 10.45. We've made note of this many times. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the interpretation that Jesus gives of what he does in his sacrificial death? Well, it's a sacrifice. It's a ransom. It actually does something. And what it follows is the continued record of the events by which Jesus' activity gives his life for many. His life as a ransom. Just as an illustration to help you see that the distinction that I'm trying to, to make here is uh, this past week was my birthday. Basically, I just look for illustrations to make sure everyone in the church knows when my birthday is. Uh, that's all this is, really. It's an unnecessary illustration. Also to let you know this, I love pecan pie. It's true. Um, and this year, Sandy, as she often does, says, what would you like for your dessert for your birthday? And I, I said, well, I mean, pecan pie, obviously, right? But this year... It wasn't just that I wanted the beautiful fruit of the labor that would produce me a a, a pecan pie, but I had just listened to a podcast in which it was said that the art of pie making is dying out. This shall not be. All right? So as I I thought about that, I said, how how can I do my part in this culture and its degradation uh, to to, to see something good flourish like like pecan pies? And so I, I thought... Sandy makes the best, pecan, best crust on the planet for pies. And what if she handed this down to Eliana? And so I said, I don't just want a pecan pie. I want a pecan pie made by Eliana. So here's what I want you to see. 
You see, I, I, I wanted the, the beautiful fruit of the work. I wanted this beautiful pecan pie. And let me tell you, it showed up, and I'm still eating it. It's so good. But I also wanted to know something about the labor itself. I wanted to give attention to the work, the historical action of the pie making that took place on that Wednesday morning to produce the beautiful product, the, the accomplishment of the pecan pie. What I really want us to do here today is, yes, we have the beautiful, fruitful work of the gospel. The good news that we proclaim is pecan pie is done, right? The good news that we proclaim is there is forgiveness of sin, right? But what Mark invites us to do is step back and say, how in the world did that happen? What took place earlier in the historical record that could give us this good news? And that's what's taking place in these last chapters of Mark. We're told that it happened as soon as it was morning, just the evening before Jesus has been worshiping God with his disciples. He's been remembering the deliverance of the Exodus and the Passover meal and giving them a sign of a new deliverance. And just hours before, Jesus was seeking the the Father in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just moments before, he was betrayed by his own disciple Judas into the hands of those who seek his death. Just moments before, he was dragged before the Sanhedrin in a mockery of a trial before he was beaten, mocked, and spat upon. And it's not even morning. And as soon as it was morning, this group of people took Jesus and they delivered him over to the highest authority of the land, to the rulers of Rome. And now, as it's morning, Jesus is dragged before these representatives. And we are introduced to a major character in the gospel account, the major character of Rome. Now, Rome has been there the whole time. But here, we're introduced to Rome, and it become, Rome begins to play a major role in the historical record in the person of Pontius Pilate. All of the ministry of Jesus has taken place under Roman occupation. This is true. We're reflecting just recently. If you look at the history of the time in this region, uh, Rome was the dominant force, and all of it is also taking place under the, the effect of Greek culture upon these cities. The people growing up in light of these competing realities of, of the Greek and Roman culture. But at this moment, we begin to move to the, the, from the second to the third step of Jesus' word about himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and then, third, be killed. And for this to happen, we need Rome to enter the scene, because they are the ones who have the authority to execute this sort of judgment. Jesus has suffered many things, even suffering betrayal and abandonment by his own disciples. Jesus has been rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, even to the point that they've plotted his death. They've they've planned out how he could die, but under the governing authority of Rome, it's under that authority that the execution of the judgment will take place. You can see how, how Mark is covering the spheres of persons so that there is none who are without excuse in this narrative. The gospel of Mark is helpful to us in this. Yes, the gospel means forgiveness of sin, and it secures hope 
of eternal life. But the gospel is not merely an idea. The gospel is not merely a theory or philosophy, even the general disposition of love and kindness from God. It is not sufficient to say that the gospel is love, God's love for us. The gospel isn't merely this sort of a general idea. It is a historical reality. The ground of the gospel is the very events of the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. The events, the historical record of these things are the ground of the gospel upon which all of the beautiful spring of grace and mercy and salvation and forgiveness spring. To put it another way, we can debate the philosophical merits of Christianity next to other religions, even other contemporary philosophies and theories of our day. But as we consider Christianity, we must also deal with the historical reality of the events of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you interact with the ideas of the age, do you give these words, these last chapters, these events in the life of Jesus, do you allow them to occupy any space? In the conversation, we have to do business with a historical Jesus. Now, one of the interesting things that you can observe from this passage is it says that he was delivered over to the Gentiles. He was delivered over to Rome and specifically Pontius Pilate. And so it would seem that Jesus is standing there before Pontius Pilate, but in reality, in the reality of the scope of all of history, it's actually Pilate who stands before the judge. And so Jesus has been turned over to the governing authority of Rome. If you look at verse 2 with me, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Pilate's question is a political question. Are you the king? It's a matter of civil government. Are you the king of the Jews? And so is Jesus claiming the authority in Jerusalem that is a challenge to the imperial imperial authority of Rome? Jesus' answer is much debated. What does he mean by this? You have said so? Is he saying, hey, those aren't my words. That, that, That came from your mouth, buddy. Or is he saying, right on, nailed it. Your words have spoken. Much like we considered last week when we saw in the face of the questions presented by the high priest to Jesus, in their questioning of Jesus, they were not seeking the truth. They were seeking an opportunity to kill him. It didn't matter what his words were that he said. They were going to be used as a tool for his execution. And so Jesus, not seeking his own defense in the face of evildoers, Jesus remains silent. Jesus' answer affirms the truthfulness of Pilate's question, while at the same time withholding from Pilate any just grounds upon which Pilate might justly find Jesus guilty of rebellion against Rome. Jesus is not a rebel against Rome. He's not. And it's unjust to crucify him as such. There's no answer that Jesus could give that would bring clarity or understanding to this 
trial of sorts before Pilate. The fact is, Jesus has not sought a political revolution. Jesus has preached the reality of the kingdom of heaven and the authority of the Lord over all of life. Jesus is the king. Not only the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of all of creation. But Jesus has made no move toward revolt or political might or the seizing of any civil authority. It's Pilate who's playing a political game, not Jesus. What's Jesus supposed to say that would bring clarity in that moment? And so he remains silent. As we'll see moving forward, it appears that Pilate wants to portray himself as not responsible for the death of Jesus. He's simply playing politics. The reality is, no matter what Pilate's political maneuvering is, whether to soothe his own conscience or to placate Jesus' followers in any event that there would be some in the midst of the crowd, it's under the authority of Pilate that Jesus is handed over to be crucified. And that reality is what makes its way into the Apostles' Creed. It's under this authority. Pilate could have said no, but Pilate said yes. Crucify him, as we'll see. Look at verse 3 with me. The chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? The chief priests have taken the role of accuser on behalf of the leadership of Jerusalem. They, They begin to renew their accusations. But Jesus made no further answer, verse 5 says, so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus has said his peace, and now he remains silent. There's no argument to make with those who are bent on evil. Man, I've, I've had to sit in that for a whole week since last week. There's no argument. There's no arguing with someone who is simply bent on evil. And so Jesus' silence moves forward under the sovereign will of the Father, who doesn't make arguments with evil, but exercises his, the divine right of the king of creation, his sovereign rule, even in the midst of evil. And Jesus is content to remain there. Under the sovereign will of the Father, he drinks the entire cup of suffering until his death. And note that Pilate was amazed. He's seen many men under the accusation of and threat of death, and on this day, as he stands before Jesus, who's amazed? Whose adrenaline is running? That's Pilate. Jesus is brought before Pilate so that Pilate can stand in judgment over him. But as Pilate stands amazed, it's clear that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is, as we'll see, the sovereign And in reality, it's Pilate who stands before Jesus, and it's Pilate who is found lacking. He's the one, ultimately, with no words. He's the one who's amazed. Jesus is the judge. If you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 42, and I would encourage you to to jot that down in the margin of your Bible here, so you can go there later this week, or look at the notes that are on the podcast this week. Jesus is is the judge. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, it says, and Jesus commanded us to preach to the people 
and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. What is part of our proclamation? Part of our proclamation is that Pilate is not the judge. He is not the final authority. Jesus has worked his way up through the ranks of authority to the highest authority the world had to offer. And yet Jesus says, proclaim that I am the judge of the living and the dead. All will one day stand before Jesus. There there will be no argument nor line of questioning on that day. The reality of our sin and our failure is laid bare before the judge of the world. He's seen us. He knows us. Perhaps we've managed by our own pretending and performing, by our own political maneuvering. You say, I'm not into politics. Yes, you are. You know how to behave around people. You know how that you maneuver and hide, and you play a little game to be seen as just so, to hide the reality of your sinfulness from yourself and from others and perhaps maybe from God. But there remains a judge who will judge in righteousness, and the day of judgment in which all will be revealed. Amen. Acts chapter 17. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed Who is the man of righteousness who will judge the world? Of all this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It is he who has triumphed over all of the efforts at judgment of him who will rise up and take his seat as the final judge. The call this morning is to lay down the tools of our pretending. We've practiced it the whole of our lives. Lay down the tools of our pretending. The the only preparation for the day of judgment that remains for us is to take shelter in the reality of what is recorded for us here. This is, Mark chapter 15 and what follows, is our preparation for the day of judgment. No pretending, no performing, just refuge. Note that we've Managed to not, we haven't managed to justify ourselves by giving attention here, but Jesus, we see, is crucified in our place. And our only plea before the judge on that day is that he has already suffered the just judgment of our sin in our place. You were the righteous one, and you died, so that the unrighteous can find refuge in you. This is the work of the gospel, the very ground of the gospel that Jesus has accomplished in the words that we read today. Now in the next section of the passage, we've already seen that Pilate stands before the judge, and now we see that before the crowd stands the king. Look at verses six through eight with me. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder In the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Here at the Passover, Pilate offers to release one prisoner. And he asks in verse 9, he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? It would appear that Pilate is feeling out the public sentiment. 
Like he has the power to do what he wishes, and he's putting this out there, almost like a, a, a straw poll. Hey, how's it going to go if I kill this guy? I mean, do you want him released, the king of the Jews? He could see through the plotting of the chief priests that there's no real grounds for his execution, so he has to continue to play the political game. So he takes this little poll. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. It would appear that this is a different crowd from those who so warmly escorted Jesus into the city not long ago. It would appear that the chief priests have gathered a group, probably interspersed with false accusers from Jesus' sham trial that we saw just in the previous episode and before the Sanhedrin, and they stir up the crowd to begin to cry out for Barabbas. Now, it was unjust before they started crying. What business does Pilate have to even ask this question? The question that ought to be on his mind is, what is right? What is true? Is this man innocent or is this man guilty? But the crowds, they cry out for Barabbas, and they, that scratches Pilate's political ear, and they all work together to release a murderous insurrectionist. Friends, that ought to cause us to pause. It's caused many throughout the church, throughout all of history, to to observe that a guilty man goes free. We've said that there is a sovereign, there's a divine actor in history, there's an image for us, that the just man goes to his death, why an accused murderer goes free. Verse 12, Barabbas, I'm sorry, um, Pilate asked, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Pilate said, well, what evil has he done? Pilate knows the answer to that. They shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, not justice, the crowd, Released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What should I do? Crucify him. Why? Well, because crucify him. There's justice for you. Is that a trial? Has Rome stooped to trying capital offense by popular vote? The sentence is pronounced, and Jesus' death is just hours away. In Psalm 22, the most powerful messianic of the Psalms, Psalm 22, is one step closer to fulfillment. Psalm 22, verses six through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him, and the psalm moves forward. Jesus has faced the religious leaders, the governing authorities, the crowds of the people. He's been betrayed by, the trust, by a trusted disciple. He's been abandoned by all who follow him, and now he's delivered over to death. I think that one of the greatest contrasts in these events is between the injustice of humanity and the mercy of God. This is taking place in this historical record. 
The crucifixion of Jesus is thoroughly marked by corruption, failure of the institutions of men, whether religious or political, and yet we keep thinking that somehow we're better than this? That we should expect something other than corruption from the institutions of men? We would do right. We would do well. Not, no, no longer to expect and place our hope in the institutions of men, but rather to cry out for what we see in this passage, which is the mercy of God. Jesus, who is himself the just judge and the sovereign king, remains silent. Why? Because the Lord has willed that in mercy he would suffer all injustice. There's something I have come to expect from the institutions of men. From people like you and me, wherever we can be found. In corruption, pretending, performing, hiding, maneuvering, lying, deceiving, seeking our own goods and our own ends by our own means. But there is something that I have come to expect from the Lord, and that is mercy. I've come to expect mercy because I've seen mercy, so that all who trust in him, who believe that in him is mercy, even for sinners like me, in him is mercy, we might be saved. There will come a day in which we ourselves are delivered over to Jesus. Think about that. Judas delivering Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin delivering Jesus over to Rome. Rome delivering Jesus over to the whims of the people. But there will be a day that we will be delivered over to the judge. And we will stand before the eternal king. We will stand before the eternal judge. What a moment. What an opportunity for Jesus to execute retribution for all that he suffered at the hands of wicked men. Oh, man, what a climactic moment in this cosmic movie, right? All who fail to repent and trust in Jesus' sacrifice. All, All who have sent him over into death. All who condemn Jesus, who who have rejected him in this story, nothing but judgment, right? And yet, Jesus has sent his apostles, and he sent his church, and he sent you and me, and he's recorded his word, and he's given his spirit that we would hear another message, that we would hear a call to faith, that we would hear a call from the one who has the right, the right to judge, that you and I would hear the call to take refuge in him because the day of justice is coming. And justice will come down for Pilate, for the Sanhedrin, for you and I in our failure and sin if we have not taken refuge in him. It's the only secure refuge, the refuge of by grace, through faith. For those who humble themselves before the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, we have no greater hope than to be delivered over to the mercy and grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be delivered over. And what we will find for all who trust in him for the forgiveness of sin, we will find mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, right here, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God's purpose for those who place their faith in him is not that we would perish under the weight of our sin, but that we would put the riches of his grace on eternal display through our redemption. God is glorified in us, not by our righteousness, but by his grace at work in us. Verse, 20, verse 7 of the same passage, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And if you think that standing before the judge and hearing the, the, the proclamation of salvation, of refuge, and entrance into his kingdom is good news, now imagine an eternity of the immeasurable riches. Immeasurable. Won't run out. You've only seen the beginning of it. The immeasurable riches of his grace poured out on his people forever. In these final chapters of Mark, we're watching the fulfillment of the final sacrifice, the day of atonement. Verse, Leviticus chapter 16. The day of atonement is a, a yearly sacrifice where the sins of the people would be symbolically transferred to a scapegoat. And this sacrificial animal would be driven outside the city. And there's nothing just about the death of the scapegoat. There's nothing just about it. But the sacrificial animal is handed over to death in the place of those who deserve death themselves. It's not just Jesus in the Gospel of Mark that's proclaiming what's happening here. This has been proclaimed among the people and preserved for us in the word from the beginning. Jesus is now being driven outside the city to be executed in the place of sinners. He's no unwitting animal caught up in the schemes that are, that are larger than him. He's the true and righteous king and judge of all of creation who, who willingly becomes the sacrificial slaughter for the people. He gives his life as a ransom for many. This is the historical record. And I call you this morning to trust in Jesus in your place. Repent of your sin. I ought to be driven out. There's nothing just about this, but it's what the sovereign Savior has done. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. And as a people who have therefore been forgiven of our sin, we can be honest about our failures. We make many decisions about what is important in our lives on a daily basis. And part of our prayer of confession is to kind of remember, how did that go recently? We make many decisions about what is important in our lives. The chief priests decided to eliminate a threat to their power. Power was important. Pilate decided to play a political game and ignore justice and truth. Politics and position were important. The crowd decided to prioritize an ongoing political struggle against Roman occupation. Many other things, conflicting matters in that crowd. Jesus, again, stands alone. He alone chooses the will of the Father. He alone sets aside his own self-preservation to give his life for others. You know, I've never stood in a crowd and cried out, crucify him. 
But I can tell you, I have knowingly chosen my own comfort and control over humbling myself before Jesus the King. And I've cried out for other things in my daily life than Jesus, my King. In light of the grace of Jesus to forgive sin and to restore, consider today was what is of greatest, of utmost importance and value in your life. Be honest about the ways that you've chosen to ignore and even turn away from Jesus to seek the approval of others, to maintain some sort of power or control or comfort in your own life. And I call you as well. I call you as well to trust in the Lord. Not only for the forgiveness of sin, oh, praise be to God, but also for the proper ordering of our lives. Lord, you're king. You are the just judge. You are the mercy giver. We don't cry out for Barnabas or any other worldly rescue or worldly desire. We cry out, we want Jesus. Give me Jesus. He alone is my king. Heavenly Father, it's not hard to remember moments where we've cried out many other phrases. We didn't even have to be bought off or persuaded by a group of malicious leaders of our own free will. We have chosen to run after other things. But you have doggedly, moment by moment, single-heartedly pursued the redemption of a people to yourself. And that pursuit of redemption was not an idea. It wasn't a metaphorical love. It wasn't a, 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 simply a disposition. It was a work that we see being recorded for us in these words. We pray, Lord, that your word and spirit would do work in our hearts to do a business of faith in us, that we would see your grace and be moved, and that we would, yes, confess our sin and our moment-by-moment need for you. And Lord, in doing this, you would become our only hope in life and death. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your record. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and it rings true. We pray these things, trusting in you, trusting in the name of Jesus to accomplish what you have worked in our lives. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.